They are the people most threatened by climate change. Not, I hasten to add, from rising temperatures or sea levels, but from the ludicrous and unsustainable climate change policies pursued by state and federal governments. What they're doing is they're filling the sharks, they're keeping the fins, the very high-value fins, but they're actually disposing of the bodies over the side of the vessel. Well, I think when I was a baby, I was dropped on my head a few times. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I know I was, and they had to give me a metal crib because I broke through the wooden ones. Andrews is going and leaving the mess for others to clean up. We know the left cannot wait to bring back the COVID and masking hysteria just in time for the 2024 election. You've created almost irreconcilable divisions in this country. And for what? A referendum that will now fail? Hello and welcome to another week of Parting Shots, covering the big stories of the week at ADH with me, Fred Paul, and my co-host, Nick Cater. Nick, how are you, mate? I'm well, Fred. Been a great week, right? The departure of Dan Andrews and... um Surprisingly, the PM has failed to be able to turn around the tumbling support for The Voice. Well, <laughs> I, yeah. I thought he was better <laughs> than that. <laughs> both historic, uh, both historic um, occasions, and uh, we will be looking into both of them in depth. But the the most startling thing for me of the week, Nick, was the the sight, the unusual sight, for Australia at least, of seeing people celebrating the departure. Of a political tyrant, of course, on the steps of uh, of Parliament on Spring Street in Melbourne. What did you make of that, Nick? Yeah, it's a bit like that moment that Ceausescu got booed, <laughs> wasn't it, on the balcony? Um, there, yeah. there, and, and I think probably the same happened to a, a Slovakian leader about that time. We might ask, yeah. <laughs> ask our producer who that is. But no, it, it, it's, the, the, the end of a tyrant is always a wonderful moment, isn't it? And um, you hope that it'll bring some of Dan's critics out of witness protection. He had critics within the Labour Party who were just scared scared witless of him, right? And um, Well, we saw, and we saw that just yesterday, um, Dan's parting gesture, his parting shot, so to speak, uh, was to have an absolute hissy fit inside caucus when he, um, when, because it, it seemed for a, a, a short while that he wouldn't get his way with his successor. Now, mm. the thing about this, Nick, is that if that's no wonder they are so formidable as a government, because if that's where they're like to each other, imagine what they're like to the opposition. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, as as, um, as Julie Sloan wrote the other day, Victorians will forever be in his debt because he ran yeah. up huge quantities <laughs> yeah. of debt. He's left a he's left a stinking pile of something there, hasn't he? Plus that all that. All that embarrassment uh, and disgraceful behaviour over the Commonwealth Games, just dropping the Commonwealth Games. Well, let uh, me let me list this litany that he leaves behind because your wife, Rebecca Weiser, has very conveniently uh, summed it all up for us in a very scintillating piece in the Spectator Australia, uh, summing up Dan's acidic reign, if I can put it that way, <laughs> which lists his trailblazing woke policy to trans children against the wishes of their parents banning Australia Day parades, mm-hmm. his grubby political tactics, his failed infrastructure projects, and, of course, his kowtowing to China. But it is the litany of tyrannical measures during COVID that are the crown on his legacy. And Rebecca quotes the Institute of Public Affairs, estimating, which is the, uh, the great Melbourne think tank, estimating the cost of it all, which is $107 billion in direct spending. This is on, on the COVID lockdowns. 
This is money spent locking people up in their homes and a further economic cost of $111 billion. And in return for all that, Nick, Victoria earned the dubious honour of the highest absolute and per capita COVID casualties in the nation. Mm. Well, you see, this is the point, isn't it? He didn't really need the Commonwealth Games. He'd set so many world (laughs) and Australian records, didn't he? I mean, 262 days of lockdown. We think that's uh, the highest in the world. I think that might be disputed somewhere on Wikipedia, but that's it's certainly a pretty good number. Mm. Uh, And it was more draconian. I think it's fair to say it's more draconian than any other uh, liberal democracy, anywhere the Westminster democracy. So we, that's a that's a Commonwealth Games gold for him on that <laughs> one. I would have thought gold for Australia. And, yeah, and and um, and as Rebecca said, that it also had the the highest per capita number of deaths in Australia, 160 per million. Next was New South Wales on just 92, and uh, together with that, the largest per capita state debt. So I think all those things are related. And as I as I said on the show the other day, if if um, if Victoria is a crash dummy for for lockdowns, we've got to we've got to assume that they're, they're like um, like some very expensive car that doesn't work, right? And the fact that the fact that the um, doesn't keep you safe, the fact the fact that eighty five check this the other day eighty five percent of COVID deaths in Queensland occurred after the vaccination, after oh well, not after the vaccination, but after the vaccine was available and 95% of people took it. So what does that tell you about the efficacy of the vaccine? Not much. Not much. As Jared Rennick said the other day, va- vaccines are meant to reduce your immunity, not increase it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Increase, increase the other way around, your, I yeah, think, yeah, Fred. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah. sorry. I'm not a scientist. We'll cut that bit out. <laughs> Don't... <laughs> Well, actually, um, we've been setting some records here. Not, not, we're not in the same league as Dan, of course, but uh, we posted a compilation of Dan's premiership, which was edited by Nathan, who is the manager of the brilliant Instagram and Twitter account called Milk Bar TV. I highly recommend listeners uh, search that one out because he produces some of the finest video content in the country. And he's been working for us lately. And as soon as we heard that uh, Dan had walked away, um, we asked him to compile something using some of our uh, some of our own content from here at ADH. And it uh, and it's broken a few records uh, of our own for uh, social media traction. So um, if you're interested, have a look at our social media accounts. It went up late on Tuesday afternoon and it's... Uh, it's very good. And as a form of black comedy, if you like black comedy, you'll just indeed. split your sides with it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to return to Dan Andrews later in the show when we grab a sample of Alan Jones's diatribes about the man from earlier in the week you won't want to miss that but let's nick let's move on to your show from last night again this is stella reporting from north queensland where decisions made in canberra are having catastrophic effects let's have a listen we hear a lot these days about the rights of minorities in this era of identity politics. Well, tonight I want to focus on a vulnerable, threatened minority that's treated with disdain by many of their fellow Australians. Their land rights are being eroded, their communities ripped apart and their cultural values are being trampled upon. They are the people most threatened by climate change. 
Not, I hasten to add, from rising temperatures or sea levels, but from the ludicrous and unsustainable climate change policies pursued by state and federal governments. I refer, of course, to the 7 million Australians who live in rural and remote communities. They make up 28% of the Australian population, but they're bearing 100% of the pain inflicted by the rapacious renewable energy industry. The comfortable people in latte land with their luxury beliefs about climate change can carry on all they like about more action on climate change, the urgent need for renewables, the phasing out of coal. It's fine for them. They, they garner all the moral virtue and leave it up to others to put up with the consequences. There's no thought for rural and regional Australians who suddenly find themselves invaded by giant wind turbines and broad acres of solar panels or discover giant transmission towers are about to march across their land. Well, Nick, I live in Latte land, but I don't, I wouldn't wish this kind of uh, dystopian, renewable nightmare on anyone. No, no, you, you just remind me, you do live in the, the goat cheese belt, don't you? I do. When you, the, <laughs> yes. The, 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 yes. Yeah, uh, it, it, uh, it reminds me of a quote from uh, uh, Thomas Sowell. We, we always end up quoting from Thomas Sowell on this show, don't we? But, but yes. no greater fellow, if you just bear with me. Yeah. Um, Thomas well, while you're looking that up, I'll just urge uh, listeners to have a look at Nick's show from Thursday night. It's Battleground with Nick Cater. You can find it on ADH.TV because straight after this particular grab, Nick was up in a helicopter. Uh, 30, just the ADH chopper. The I'm, ADH. The first to, I'm first to give it a run. <laughs> Eat your heart out, Channel 7. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, the AD, he fired up the ADH chopper, wound up that elastic band and got the propeller running. And uh, and it, you were only thirty kilometres west of Rockhampton, but the, the 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 countryside that you flew over was absolutely stunning. And this is where um, Chris Bowen and various other uh, renewable zealots are planning to dump forests full of these two hundred and seventy metre high windmills, and they will absolutely destroy the place. Yes, exactly. They will. I, I've, so if you look at this, from, you go down the Capricornia Highway, right? The biggest, about 25 k's out of, out of Rockhampton, the biggest landmark by far is the chimney tower on the Stanwell Power Station, which is 203 metres tall. These wind turbines are going to be 275 metres tall, so about a quarter of much again as the chimney which now dominates the landscape. More than that, they're going to be placed on hills up to 400 metres high. So this is just, I mean, it's just Nick, you can't tell me this isn't a religion. These are like these are like putting crucifixes on hilltops. Yeah. Well, it, it, from the road, you know, you just see these distant hills. But when we went up in the chopper, in the ADH chopper, <laughs> flew over the top, um, I, I just... I couldn't believe it because you get up there and it, it's so inaccessible, right? You couldn't, you know, you'd struggle to get up there on foot, let alone in a vehicle. So there's never been any farming up there, uh, hardly any grazing. It's just native bushland. It's That's what struck me about it. You said you were only 30 k's out of Rockhampton. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the view, uh, I really do highly recommend this footage that you recorded. It It looks ancient. It looks like it hasn't been, I mean, I hate this, I hate the concept of untouched by man, you know, by mankind, because it has all these sort of uh, environmental overtones. But 
it is pristine bushland that seem, that was seemingly has been like that for thousands of years. Yeah, and 20 years ago, when the Green Movement was into the wilderness, when it was about saving the wilderness, this is the sort of place that they would have put a steel, steel fence around, right? Because yeah. that's what they believed in. But then they jumped. They went from defending places to ideas, and that's where things went haywire. They stopped, they stopped arguing for places, and they started arguing... For climate change, or which is climate exactly change. when it became a religion. That's e- exactly, a, yeah. but but honestly, the Black Mountain. We flew up. Uh, we approached Black Mountain, and and um, Glenn, who was my companion, said, "And they're going to stick one right on that mountain." And I thought, "He's got to be joking." <laughs> I, how can you build road? The, 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 just the civil construction work alone. Well, you were telling me the other day that not only do they have to clear the land for the base of these windmills to go in, but they need to clear adjacent land for the crane to sit on that hoists up the the blades. Well, for each wind turbine, it's a four-hectare pad. That's not an inconsiderable piece of land, right? And then you need next to that another four-hectare pad, and they have to be really solidly built, really heavy-duty because you stick a... A, a giant crane on there to put the turbine up and and you don't want those things waving around in the breeze so it's got to be pretty solid right so you get two of those for each turbine and there are 58 of them there and then you get scores of kilometers of roads scores of kilometers in that project i'm not sure how many but it is it is a massive number and these are roads and they're 12 meters wide and much bigger at the corner so you can get the blades around and they're going up steep hills it's just crazy. Yeah, you well, look at this I mean, and you go, you must be bonkers <laughs> to even think this was an idea. Well, it, it, it's one thing for you know people like you and I in the, in the latte belt to uh, in latte land to be bewildered by all this, the way it's described. But you met well, you met a lot of people up there, and I've got to, again, I've got to commend your reporting on this. It's 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 stellar stuff. But you met it. Just as a sample from your show on Thursday night, here's a couple of farmers who described the frustration they are having with the scale of all this renewable energy and the unwillingness for anyone in power to hear their objections. Let's have a listen. And they're talking uh, CQP, which I've spoken to the CEO of Energy Estate. Um, When we've spoken the amount of projects to go in this area here, There'll be uh, 400 turbines within 30 kilometres of my house. Our goal is to try and get the message to the city, and I think that's been the hardest thing, that they just don't want to know. We can get into media in regional areas. We can. It took us a while to crack the ABC. They came out and interviewed us a while ago, and she basically just said, I don't know. If I'll get this up, I'll need to talk to my boss. And I was like, yeah, right, yeah. Um, but we're starting to see it, and we're you know we go to the city and start telling people, and they're like, I have no idea about how. What do you mean? Yeah, Nick, what you're pretty much the only journalist who's uh, you know following this story. ADH is the only one covering it at the moment. <laughs> Why isn't it getting more media coverage? It's it's not well. It's beginning to, and I actually I feel there's almost a sort of moment, real momentum building now. So we've been. We've been on this, as you know. We were on it first, earlier than anybody else. This is why, incidentally, I think you know, alternative digital media is so important because we pick up what the woke press leaves behind. And uh, they hadn't touched this story. It's too difficult for them. It's too difficult for them, uh, mostly. I mean, the Australian, uh, to give it its due, is beginning to pick it up now. Um, 
Peter Credle at Sky News, let's give credit where credit's due, is doing a fantastic job on this story and, and doing exactly what I'm doing. She's not getting out and about. She's interviewing people over Zoom and so forth. But it's about bringing those forgotten Australians' voices out in the mainstream. And they don't, you know, very often they're at a disadvantage because they don't have the sort of purple prose of the, uh, you know, the inner city latte set who just talk in you know, a very posh language. They, but when you listen to them, as I did, I sat down with them at a community meeting, that they just talk a whole lot of common sense and they're generally much, much better informed on the engineering and the science and everything that's required for energy than their city colleagues. And that's, that comes to that Thomas Sowell quote, quote yeah. at the end of his marvellous book, The Vision of the Anointed. In the anointed, we find a whole class of supposedly thinking people who do remarkably little thinking about substance and a great deal of verbal expression. Seldom have so few cost so much to so many. <laughs> Isn't that just <laughs> true of what they're it. doing with renewable energy? Yeah, well, all that, well, and all that talking, that's interesting. I was going to say you had, you'd, have to feel, uh, you'd have to feel some sympathy for that ABC reporter stumbling across... A what is by all accounts by any any reasonably trained journalist would go well. This is a good yarn, mm. but if you're working for the ABC, you'd be like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get this past the the green gatekeepers back at headquarters? If if they were doing a tenth of the destruction they're about to do on that on that that piece of um, natural wilderness, in order to build put up a coal mine, it would be an outrage. And, and you might remember at last end of last year, Tanya Plibersek stopped Clive Palmer building a coal mine. I think it was partly because it was Clive Palmer, but the reason <laughs> the reason she stopped it was because the runoff would go into the Great Barrier Reef, right? Because it was ten kilometres off the coast of um, of central Queensland. Now this thing is in the catchment. So all the all, Moa Creek, I think the people who called it Moa Creek are going to rue the day because it reminds us that there is a creek and it runs somewhere. Where does it run? Into the Fitzroy River, out into the Coral Sea, right out to the Barrier Reef. So all the sediment and dirt that they, they complain about from mining is going to be there and more from this thing. But where's the Australian Marine Conservation Society on this one? Nowhere. Yeah, yeah. They haven't mentioned the blooming thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Coal is the is the easy villain, mm. and windmills are just but being sold as as clean. Coal is just dust at the end of the day when it's in the water, right? That's what they were worried about when they built that new, or well, expanded the terminal Abbott Point where the Adani coal goes out. It was coal just sitting on and you know smothering dugongs, right? Well, it's no different if you're if you're blasting holes in hills and all that dirt and inorganic matter is going through the water as sediment as well it's exactly the same it doesn't matter whether it's white sediment or black sediment it can still supposedly smother dugongs so but no no not a squeak not a squeak well in a minute we're going to get back to uh the dan andrews uh story because that is the story of the week but while we're talking about the ocean nick let's let's continue on that theme for a minute let's talk about sharks which is uh, as you know and, and most of the listeners probably know by now is one of my favorite topics not many people realize this nick but one of the reasons sharks are so heavily protected in australia is that the shark lobby has been able to conflate the supposed decline of the population of species like great whites and tigers 
which I'd argue are not declining at all, but are in fact increasing at an alarming rate. But all that aside, protection of these species has been imposed internationally, partly because of the reportedly high toll of other species at the hands of fishermen who are only interested in the shark's fin. So yeah. this is, you know, when when you say, you know, international fishermen, I mean, that's that's a euphemism for um, for Chinese fleets of Chinese um, fishermen who don't uh, who haven't been raised in the Western education system to think that the world's about to end anyway. But I've got to, I've just got to elaborate on this. The shark lobby has for decades capitalised on the idea that men in boats, that's Chinese men in boats, are causing carnage on with sharks on the high seas and therefore all sharks everywhere need to be protected. Now, Nick, the research into this phenomenon has, in my experience, and I've read a lot of this stuff, routinely overstates the toll on the sharks because there are lucrative research grants and donations from philanthropic greenies to be had by anyone who sounds the alarm over this stuff. Mm. So anyway, Nick, you have in your investigations into, I mean, we spoke about this last week that uh, you've stumbled across the, uh, the decimation of the barramundi and the Spanish mackerel industries in Queensland, thanks to the state government and the federal government. But uh, uh, following that, you've you've scored an interview with a bloke called Dominic Thompson. I've got to say, I admire this guy. I mean, he's clearly a greenie, but he's he's of the Environmental Justice Foundation, which is it's a UK organisation, but he's based in Hong Kong. Now, mate, he's uh, he, he's playing with fire here because he's a severe critic of the Chinese fishing fleet, isn't he? Mm, they've done some great work, the Environmental Justice Foundation. What they do is they go around to ports in Indonesia and the Philippines and a few other countries where uh, migrant labour, migrant labour is used, is basically used as slave labour, as it turns out. They're taken on board these uh, far water uh, fleets from go out of China all over the world and they're at sea for a year or sometimes two years and these poor sods are on board basically being forced to catch so uh you know at work so, under sorry to, sorry to interrupt so they they go around sort of southeast asian fishing ports and yep. they sidle up to the the, the hired help yeah uh, probably filipino or indonesian poor villages you know that, that the chinese fleet has has seconded from uh, from fishing villages around the coastline and and they've got their testimony. Is that how it works? Yeah. So Environmental Justice Foundation has spoken, I think, to more than 100 of these people have worked on these ships. So it's a large sample and they've got uh, consistent stories and in some cases, you know, quite horrific um, f- video footage taken on phones that I, I showed a bit of. Yeah, well, let's get Dominic. Let, let's hear Dominic talk about that. Martina, if you can roll the next grab. Thank you. Uh, I want to show you now some disturbing, some of the disturbing footage that you obtained uh, showing the treatment of sharks on fishing vessels. If we can put that on the screen now. It's a pretty disturbing image, this, isn't it? What, 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 what's behind this brutal activity? Well, the activities that you're seeing in, in these clips um, show shark finning, and this is an illegal practice um, all around the world in, in terms of shark fisheries and, and fishing industries, um, because what they're doing is they're finning the sharks, they're keeping the fins, the very high value fins, but they're actually disposing of the bodies over the side of the vessel. 
Um, in most shark fisheries, you're required to keep the body um, and declare this when you actually land the entirety of the shark, um, either at port or when you transfer it to another vessel. So they are finning these sharks because of that incredibly high value fin. Um, and it's it's just pure um, economics, really, in terms of the space that they can save by getting rid of the body. If they can get rid of the body, they can stack the fins on one on top of the other, and it allows them to collect even more fins and also to store them a lot easier as well. Yeah, as I said, um, if you go to Nick's show, Nick Cater's Battleground on 88.tv, you'll see that footage. Some of it's not very, uh, not very pleasant viewing. I've got to say, it's not just of sharks. There's a, you know, there's a massive turtle and some clubbing seals. of a seal, killing clubbing, of a seal. Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, what Dominic told me about, which we didn't actually manage to get in the program, but we're going to run this, I think, as a YouTube clip. Uh, he talked about dolphins. So they they collect dolphins not just as a bycatch, as a, you know, they sometimes accuse Australians of doing. But as a deliberate policy, they actually go out and harpoon dolphins, pull them on board. They take the teeth as souvenirs, and then they chop up these dolphins and use them as uh, as bait and burly for the sharks because apparently they they've got a nice smell that the sharks like. And uh, oh, that's just I mean, can you consider how much we like the dolphins? I mean, the dolphins well, are then- even more human than surfers, aren't they? <laughs> At least we use surfers to attract sharks. Here. We don't- <laughs> <laughs> but but joking apart, I mean that's just this is going. But the, what gets me is UNESCO are forcing our government to to close down gillnet fishing, which is entirely safe and very well regulated, and gives us beautiful wild caught barramundi. That's closed in Queensland because UNESCO says, oh, we can't we can't you know harm the barrier reef and deplete stocks. Whereas the Chinese just are able to get away with this at will, with no regulation. Nobody comes down. No, don't hear UNESCO going on about their shark fishing activities, do you? Yeah, well, it's like it's like Greenies not not acknowledging that uh, China and India are building, you know, coal fired power stations. While we have to, uh, well, exactly as an exact parallel, right? They increase, yeah. they increase, just as we're doing our bit. Yep. Rather too much in my my view, but you know, we're trying to reduce our emissions. They're increasing theirs by far more than we're reducing them. And so I think I suspect it's the same with well that's really not very transparent, it's the same with fishing, that we're we're trying to conserve stocks and they're going around pillaging them. Just as an interesting aside about the dolphins, twenty years ago I would have agreed with you that that, you know, dolphins are the most popular marine animal. And they were um, because you know they're kind of plain, playful. They're actually mammals. Mm. So um, you know we for some, for whatever reason um, most of us thought they were kind of cuddly things. You know, mm. and they were. They're pretty cute and and so on. But I'd argue, Nick, that the the, the sort of um, the sentiment of environmentalists these days has shifted from dolphins, which represented nature in its most friendly kind of manifestation towards sharks because if you revere nature and it it has become a religion then the symbol of that religion needs to be powerful not friendly and that's where that's where the great white comes in and and i'm not i'm not making this up i mean i deal with a lot of these greenies in my sort of pursuit and and reporting of, of the shark situation and i find it astonishing just how much people actually idolize sharks for yeah. their for, for their sort of violent um, representation of nature's power. Well, it's a trait, isn't it, on the left, is they like to, the extreme progressive left, that they like to turn disreputable figures, and in this case an animal, into, into sort of 
totemic heroes. Yes. Like the same they do it with Muslim terrorists, right? They let mu- yep. Muslim terrorists get up on Q&A yeah. and ambush, um, I can't remember who it was. but they, they, well, or, or you could say sharks are the Che Guevara of the ocean. That's right. That's right. <laughs> che Guevara is the perfect example, right? Because they, they put pictures of this vicious, sexist, brutal killer on yep. their T-shirts. Yeah. That, that is Che Guevara. He yeah. was no hero. Who, who, you know, whose achievement or part of his achievement was to smooth the passage of a common, brutal communist government in Cuba. Right, that's their hero. Yeah, now, you can see him putting sharks on next. Yep, they're the same. Sharks, one and the same. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive into the serious side of pranking woke officials now, Nick. Have you ever heard of Alex Stein? No. You, I, I, I hazard a guess that you've actually seen one of his videos. He's. He, he became quite famous a, a couple of years ago. He would just wade into leftist protests. I mean, almost as, almost as intense as sort of Antifa and BLM level stuff, you know, and obviously uh, heckling and trolling them, saying how much he, uh, he loves Western civilization or hates, hates aborting babies or whatever the topic was. And uh, he would just hold his camera up, his phone up, and uh, record him getting abused. And the thing that his his shtick was that he found it incredibly amusing. He actually loved <laughs> being abused. And so um, he, he makes it all look so easy, Nick, which is the impression you get when you look at his Twitter account. And uh, I highly recommend that listeners do. You can find him at AlexStein99. But, Nick, of course, it's not as easy as it looks. And he explained that to our colleague, Daisy Cousins, during the week. Let's have a listen to that. You demonstrate the type of lack of self-consciousness doing this that I, I actually can't get my head around. How do you have the confidence to, and the courage to go into these council meetings and, and do these kinds of comedy routines? Well, I think when I was a baby, I was dropped on my head a few times. No, seriously, I I know I was. And they had to give me a metal crib because I broke through the wooden one. So I think I have some sort of, uh, you know, mental disorder and that's part of it that that's that's part of it because i've i've gotten a lot of other people one of the things that i'm most happy about is now i have a lot of like copycats or i've inspired other people to do this and uh you know there's other crazy people like me but i guess what separates me is that to be honest the reason why i have the courage to do it i don't know if you know this daisy but i lost my mom to covid-19 she got covid then you know she went to the hospital and they gave her you know a remdesivir without my permission and she ended up dying and i remember walking into that hospital every day watching you know just watching her sitting in that bed and that's right before i blew up and i can kind of go back in my head how terrible it was when i went through that hallway and i just sat there and everything else compared to that is like nothing so going in front of a council room full of a bunch of politicians that really don't have our back it's almost therapeutic in a sense because i do have so much angst i i am still not well to say the least and so you know i kind of want to stick it to the system uh, because the system really doesn't care about us. They try to give us this illusion that it's right versus left or that our vote really matters or that we have control of the system. And really, it's corporations that can buy and sell these politicians. So really, I guess why I have the courage is because, A, I'm mad. B, I've went through some traumatic situations that are much you know, scarier. So I think those are the two main reasons why it's really like water off a duck's back, walking in that room and you know, trying to make it as awkward as possible. 
<laughs> Isn't he great? Isn't he marvellous? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And create creative, you know, creative use of the iPhone is something that yeah. we've been doing a bit here, really using all sorts of circumstances because it is it's a brilliant invention, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. But I, that was such a bombshell, Nick. I mean, I've I've sort of you know casually followed Alex Stein a couple of times over the years but uh, for him to reveal that about having lost his mum in the middle of COVID and now Mm. everything else is Mm. is water off a duck's Mm. back Mm. there's you know that I remember speaking to a uh, a famous sportsman once about um, about what it takes to succeed and uh, he said uh, you can have all the skill in the world you have all the right coaches and all the right equipment, you know, all the all the ducks in a line, but unless there's tragedy in your background, you're not going to make it. He meant it with all seriousness. This mm. guy, this guy lost his mum when he was very young. And it's very true. And yeah. it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's, the Bible is full of this, isn't it? That that God will test you only as far as you can bear, but He'll do it to make you stronger. Yeah. And it's true in all our lives, right? We've all had those experiences that have been horrible at the time, but you come out feeling stronger. Or as the Stoics as the Stoics say, choose the path of most resistance. That's <laughs> right. And but of course that's not what we're teaching kids these days, is it? At all. No, no. We're teaching the opposite how we're trying to get them to avoid pain. Yeah. And difficulty. Whereas, exactly. Yeah. So I think I think that's right. Those things do test you and make you better. And uh, I think also what he must have is just he's lost all all fear of people not liking him, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And that that was his stick. So you know, he'd he'd walk into a crowd of people who absolutely hated him. Some of them wanted to beat him up, and the smile on his face, he just he couldn't look away. Well, it's great. He's learnt the lesson that um, the great Paul Lynham taught me very early in my career. Paul Lynham was a, a legendary for, for our younger listeners. <laughs> Paul, Paul Lynham was a legendary journalist with the ABC. Um, and Channel 7, when I worked with him, he was with Channel 7, and um, I was working as a producer for him in London. He would, could be a very, very tough boss. Uh, and you, when, when you watched him, he's unfortunately um, passed away now, but when you watched him on the 7.30 report when he was the chief political interviewer, you could see the, the fear, the whites in the eyes of every politician, even up to people like Paul Keating, when they had to face him in a live interview. He was just brilliant. And he said to me once, he said, do you know your problem, Nick? I said, no, what's that, Paul? And he said, you want people to like you. <laughs> oh. And it, it's true. He, it never yeah. bothered him. Once yeah. you get over the fear that people, some people might not like you, then you, you're much stronger. And that's oh, people who, I've, unfortunately, I haven't had too much, well, maybe I haven't even noticed it, too much attacking on social media. But for people who do get attacked on social media, that's what you have to learn. Yeah, yeah. I think my problem was that uh, I wasn't dropped on my head as a baby. <laughs> if only I was, I might be as well, funny as Well, don't worry, as Fred. Nobody does like you. So you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're doing just fine. <laughs> oh, well, I can tick that box then. <laughs> okay, let's now let's return to the topic of the week. This is uh, definitely worth waiting for. Here is our esteemed colleague, Alan Jones, who didn't pull any punches and gave both barrels to the departure of Dan Andrews this week. Let's have a listen. Victoria is awash with gas reserves, a stack of it. But under Daniel Andrews, the reticulation of gas to new homes has been banned. You believe this? Banned. Andrews, the vandal. Now he's gone, 10 months into a four-year term. But he seems to have no apparent plans 
Why is he gone in the week of the AFL Grand Final? So that his departure would not receive the kind of analysis it deserves? He repeated an old saying in politics, go when they're asking you to stay. I beg your pardon? <laughs> Who is asking Daniel Andrews to stay, apart from the mad lefties, who want to stand current society on its head. Andrews is going and leaving the mess for others to clean up. He would never have passed scrutiny and an appropriate inquiry into coronavirus, but his mate, Prime Minister Albanese, has given the states a free pass. Remember, it was the Andrews government's quarantining in hotels that contributed to 800 deaths. It was Andrews who forced Melburnians to endure some of the most draconian restrictions in the world. 262 days locked down in 2020 and 2021. 262 days, nearly a year. Will we ever know how many Victorians were personally, financially and emotionally destroyed by the dictatorial edicts of Daniel Andrews? I've also said many times that the impact on business, especially Melbourne's central district, on students locked out of school and the mental health damage done to them, we will never know. People will remember the 8pm to 5am curfew. Couldn't go anywhere. Here was a deeply authoritarian man, the kind of bloke who had refused to be interviewed, didn't want to deal with hostile or penetrating questions. He just did it. He loved secrecy. Remember when he went to China recently? He didn't even let journalists cover the visit. Taxpayers paid for it. Well, that pretty much wraps it up, doesn't it, Nick? It, it does, doesn't it? No, what a... What a yeah, Andrew, and he's, he's nailed Andrews there. I mean, I, I watched... I couldn't watch it all because it was too nauseating, but I watched part of that farewell press conference he gave. And, uh, you know, what you expected him to say, well, I'm leaving because I've achieved what I've achieved. You know, I've turned Victoria into the economic powerhouse of the nation, the, the entrepreneurial capital of the world, you know, and we've we made Victoria great again and Victorians can hold their heads high. And none of that. He didn't even talk about what he'd achieved because in the end he's just been a self-serving managerial dictatorial politician who just seemed to you know get drunk on power and yeah. and and didn't achieve anything really very uh, very noticeable i think the only thing he did was to remind sort of smug and comfortable people like me who've lived all our lives in a in in liberal democracies that the veneer of democracy is very thin and and you only need somebody is calculating as Dan Andrews to, you know, turn us into an autocracy in, in, in double quick time just by scaring the bejesus out of people and then declaring emergency rule. He was, he conspicuously thanked a lot of unionists at that time as well. Mm. I mean, the, the, the cosy relationship between that government and unions was, uh, was particularly odious. But the thing, that, the thing that strikes me about it, Nick, I, 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 it's probably a fairly obvious observation, but... You know, it wasn't long ago that Australians wouldn't have tolerated a leader like that. I mean, mm. how did he get away with it? How how did someone like that emerge in a country like Australia? I'm 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 mystified by it. Well, he's just a brilliant craftsman of of the modern art of politics, which is not very nice at all. But it, you know, but he, he what he what he can do, what he could do, which was absolutely brilliant. I thought in a, in a in an absolutely fiendishly devilish kind of a way was that he could take the most extreme woke policies, you know, like uh, same what was it called the safe schools program, yep. which was all about making kids very unsafe by introducing them to transgenderism at a very young age, questioning their gender. He, you know, he he banned prayer if if that prayer was directed at trying to save somebody from becoming transgender or whatever under the, the you know. But he dressed all this up. 
in reasonable and caring terms and and so by that means he may, may put these extreme policies in place without rattling the working class blue collar conservative voters who stuck with him and as i noted in the in um piece i wrote the other day he had also had this great knack compared to queensland where they've they've upset every rec- recreational fisherman in in the state which i think is about 90 percent of queenslanders there's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a big number same in wa they've upset them by putting quotas on fishing not dan he does quite the opposite he goes out and spends millions on building boat ramps for the recreational yeah. fishers so he got that bit so he yep. he straddled that divide and that's what made him particularly dangerous because you know most woke policies have just presented fair and square won't get up and it's made me wonder what would happen if albanese had an ounce of his skill would albanese have been able to present a convincing case for the voice he might just and we might not be we we might have sneaked it through i I bet dan could have done a bit much better job than he did well contrary to that 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 uh, theory you've got about the fishing is his um, his treatment of the AFL. Now you'd think that any premier that that forced the AFL grand final out of the MCG two for two consecutive years, for what in hindsight now and wasn't even you didn't even need hindsight to know that it was a, a, a bogus reason. But in hindsight, should be clear to everyone. By now, that the that the AFL Grand Final could easily have stayed at uh, the MCG for both those two years. I mean, that is that that's that is the one big thing of the year in in Melbourne, you know. And and mm. and this week, he's disrupted the Grand Final week, which is the week when everyone's buzzing about the Grand Final and what is Brisbane and Collingwood, isn't it? So, I mean, at least you've got a Melbourne team in the grand final. So, you know, the place would be buzzing with it. And he's gone and th- lobbed a hand grenade into the into grand final week by saying, oh, by the way, I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I, I mean... He, he yeah he did he did he did piss people off. I mean, he cancelled two Grand Prix as well, right? Yeah, that, that, yeah. That really pissed off. So how does player. that? How does that? <laughs> <laughs> how does that sort of? So um, I think that was because it was all done in COVID, right? And the fact you know you know how it worked. You every time they do something radical like that, you'd think, oh, that's it, he's finished. But you'd see the opinion polls, and he hadn't hardly lost a percentage point because, in fact, what by by doing something dramatic like cancelling the Grand Prix, you're 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 reminding people how really dangerous this horrible virus is, and and they're even more scared, and then they start thanking you for cancelling the Grand Prix. You know, you yeah. could have got away with anything on that basis, and we've seen how that happened in less savoury um, places in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, well... Dan, if you're listening, good riddance. Uh, we uh, we hope we don't see your kind again for uh, in our lifetimes, at least. Anyway, and that bl- that blooming north north face jacket he used to wear. Oh, you yeah. know, it's a sort of, you know, he modelled himself on Chairman Mao. It was like Chairman Mao's oh, suit that he used was. to wear, workers' yes. suit. Yeah, that was that was. Uh, well, I'm off to. Uh, we're off to. My wife Bella Debrera and I are off to uh, Europe um, in a couple of months, and we'll be there for the uh, for the depths of winter. And we went looking for some puffer jackets to buy to take with us, right? And uh, we came across some North Face ones, and she she visually bristled at the oh, uh, at God. that logo she and it's the same with the voice you know with her with, with dan andrews of voice anyone who endured any part of that and i gotta say i i did i mean bella spent uh, quite a fair amount of time 
of the lockdown, locked in her apartment. She lived alone at the time. It was a it was an awfully depressing uh, period. And uh, you know, I spent a bit of time in Melbourne. Um, not often, not always uh, entirely legal, having in, entered the state entirely legally. Um, but, uh, you know, hearing his voice, uh, it, it, there, there's elements of PTSD to the people who suffered the most. Under, yeah, it's like the day. sound of a chopper. Yeah, exactly, um, yeah. I, I, by the way, I can recommend uh, the, the Ugg Boot Shop in George Street is doing a beautiful fur-lined glove Oh, I was going to buy a pair. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Just a little tip for you and Bella. Yeah. If, if they're listening, we'll be in for our discount later this afternoon. <laughs> okay, let's. That's enough about Dan because uh, hopefully we'll never have to speak about him again. Now let's talk. But let's talk about another COVID authoritarian. Alan also spoke to his US correspondent Peggy Grandy about Anthony Fauci. Let's have a listen to that one. Thankfully, we aren't listening to Dr. Fauci anymore. He retired from government service. But it's interesting to note that when he retired, he declared a net worth of $11 million. Two million of that he accrued during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so while Americans were losing their jobs, their homes, their businesses, their life savings and their livelihoods, Dr. Fauci was getting wealthy. And whether it was deals with the vaccine or the Wuhan lab or these mask companies, who knows? But he certainly got wealthy on a very tragic time for America and the world. We know the left cannot wait to bring back the COVID and masking hysteria just in time for the 2024 election. We hope that the American people and your people as well in Australia will push back on this. There's no science to back it. That's it in a nutshell, Nick. There's People made a lot of money out of the first, uh, the first mm. pandemic and those same people are looking to do it again. Well, Fauci notwithstanding, who's, uh, who's in uh, much welcome retirement. Mm. Well, I hope um, if Trump gets in, I, I suspect there'll be a really reckoning for these people. Hunter Biden, Joe yeah, Biden, yeah. Dr. Fauci. <laughs> uh, that book that um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote, The Real Dr. Fauci, is a, is a, you know, it's a real, um, it's a read you can't put down because he goes through this in great detail. But didn't Trump give him the Presidential Medal or some sort of honour just before he left? Yeah, Trump did, didn't he? They were very, um, he, he was... He, he, he was close to Fauci, or at least followed Fauci's advice, but he didn't completely. Mm. He he pulled in people like uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and others quietly right. to invi- advise him on, on Scott uh, Scott Atlas, I think it was from um, Ber- Berkeley, Berkeley University, I think. But I, I think so. Trump knew he needed other advice. He was suspicious of the guy, but I suspect if he comes back, you know, he'll be wanting to settle a few scores. And the fact that he, you know, he he. His COVID handling was considered to be one of the reasons he lost government, and um, that was all on the advice on Dr. Fauci. So you wonder what was going on there. The presidential race is getting really interesting. There was a piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal um, just about a week ago saying uh, uh, saying that whichever of the two parties abandons their octogenarian uh, leading contender first will win the presidential election. And his money, I can't remember the name of the author, but his money was on the Democrats because Biden is such a lost cause, whereas the Republicans are now sort of uh, really solidifying around uh, Donald Trump. And to make matters worse, in my opinion, Donald Trump has opened up a 10-point lead 
over Joe Biden in a head-to-head. Mm. So what's your take on, on where it's heading? I'm, I'm really pessimistic, Nick. I think the Democrats have a very good chance of winning the, the, the election next year with Biden or with Michelle Obama. And if Trump, if Trump is the contender, he's too old as well, and he's fighting yesterday's battles. Well, yeah. I mean, we don't want a rematch, do we, at all? I think Trump is too old, and um, there are other things that might make him a less than ideal candidate. But anyway, he he might he might get elected. But I think an octogenarian is far too old. I mean, what's happening on this station, ADH? Jack's changed the flipping app, so yeah. you go on it now, and it's got you, me, and Alan. And then it's got young talent on ADH, yeah. <laughs> and we're not in it. And and it's a few years since I till I get to my eighties. I, I that's what's happening here. We are considered you and I. Let's face it, are considered over the hill here. Yep. And yet, if we were in American politics, we'd 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 just be beginning. Yeah, we'd be the just be Ron, starting. we'd be the Ron DeSantis of the. Uh, so remember that, Jack. Listen, Jack. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Now, look, before we go, Nick, have you watched Painkiller? Yes. Have you? Yes. It's, 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 this is the one about the uh, Oxycontin. Oxycontin, yeah. Yeah, this is a brilliant series. I mean, it's been out a few weeks now. Mm. I, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm a little bit late across it, but uh, the, I'm, I've only watched, I've watched the first three episodes. Um, and uh, just as a, as a summary, it's, a, it's about how Purdue, which is a uh, privately owned um, pharmaceutical company in America, called, owned by a, a family called the Sacklers, created a drug called OxyContin in the early 90s. Now, approval for the drug came down to one person at the Food and Drug Administration in about 1995, I think, and the, uh, the, the person to approve it was a bloke called Curtis Wright, Mm. who initially uh, refused to approve this thing. And uh, the by that stage, the Sackler family had spent millions on developing this thing. And they had a lot of confidence in, uh, in it being a popular drug. So they went to work. On Curtis Wright, and uh, no, according to the, uh, there's a really good podcast um, of uh, Joe Rogan talking to Peter Berg, the director of the series, and uh, there's much speculation about how the Sacklers um, were able to persuade Curtis Wright to finally uh, provide wording that. Uh, made it ambiguous about whether or not OxyContin was addictive. OxyContin is essentially heroin mm. in a pill mm. form. Now, it's known that Curtis Wright was, that the, the, the Sackler family hosted, uh, or the Sackler uh, Purdue executives and some of the Sacklers hosted Curtis Wright at a uh, hotel somewhere for two days. And mm. uh, Peter Berg in the original script, wanted to uh, wanted to go completely off the deep end uh, to imagine what happened in that hotel room. And uh, he came up with all sorts of debauched um, ideas, uh, which his lawyers um, duly struck out. And in, in the series, I'm not really spoiling too much here, in the series, all they do is disappear into the hotel room and the door closes and it's up to the viewer to decide what happens. Mm-hmm. In the end, OxyContin is given tentative, a kind of a tentative description of saying it, it is believed, that's the word that they use, this is all very well researched, this uh, series, it is believed that OxyContin 
is not addictive. Mm. And that was all they needed. And then suddenly the gates of hell were opened on America. And according to Peter Berg, 600,000 people have died as a result of ODing it's, on it's OxyContin. Stag- it's staggering. And, and the, the thing is, um, you know, we've, we've been rather too trusting about the American um, health system and their, their system for um, authorising drug use and so forth because we just thought, well, they would do it properly. Mm. But I think as that story exposes and as we've seen with our own eyes with COVID, it is a, a deeply corruption-prone process. And, Indeed. And going back to our friend Fauci, in, some individuals hold enormous power in their system and they're untouchable because they're not electable and elected politicians can't touch them. And, and that's what's gone on. And I think that combined with something, I think this, this is what Robert F. Kennedy, one of the things Robert F. Kennedy Jr. points out, but I could be wrong, is that in the United States, as in New Zealand, incidentally, you're allowed, if you're a drug company, you're allowed to advertise your product on TV. So the, the pharmaceutical companies are the biggest advertisers in the evening news bulletins because that's mainly an older audience. Now, that explains an awful lot about the mainstream media or one section of the mainstream media's behavior and, and you know, in a, inability to separate drug, drug company propaganda from the truth. And, uh, and that, that, of course, all these things in the States, we've got to worry because it flows through to here. Not that we've been blighted well, with OxyContin in that form. Well, no, we were lucky in that regard. But I've I, I got to say, as you were alluding to, I think this is very much a microcosm of what will happen eventually uh, uh, when it comes to COVID. As journalists, you and I, Nick, have, a, have eternal faith that one day eventually the truth does come out now the interesting thing about the the sacrifice, will we be alive to see it that's well, a question yeah <laughs> yeah the truth vindicates I've, I've only got 35 40 years left on this planet at best <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, how how much uh, how long must we wait to see the likes of dan andrews defending themselves in the dock but all that aside what um, the interesting thing uh, for this um, for, for painkiller, as Peter Berg explained to Joe Rogan the other day, is that the the Sacklers, one of their key motivation motivations other than money, and they made tens of billions of dollars mm. out of this drug, one of their key motivations was um, social prestige. And they gave a lot of money to arts institutions and so on. And for the past 10 years or so, those, you know, their names on particular rooms at the, at, you know, the Victoria and Albert and the British Museum and the Louvre and so on, their little nameplates have been coming down. And that, I'd argue, Nick, is, is where it really matters. Because if, if you're seeking that, if your life's goal, having made all that money, is to seek the most prestige that you can find and it's denied, then that would hurt. And that is, in my opinion, a warning to all those people who colluded with the with the vaccine mandates and vaccine censorship and vaccine rollouts in Australia. Mm. Your time is coming. Yeah, indeed. And um, yeah, now that, that is that is the most, that's the best way of punishing them if you can do it, remove their social prestige because that's what all their actions seek. You know, that's they're, right. they're thinking... Um, 
unearned virtue, as Jordan Peterson calls it. Yeah, yeah, good phrase. Yeah, mm. indeed. And in spades. Mm. Um, I, I recommend people uh, do a little Google search of Curtis Wright, actually, because only a few weeks ago, the Daily Mail tracked him down at his remote um, place in uh, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't a happy man. Now, let's finish off on The Voice. We'll just return to The Voice, Nick, and uh, one aspect of it that is the most disturbing of it is is how much division this has caused Australian society. Um, Australian society, in my opinion, used to be a pretty, well, Australia used to be a pretty friendly and laid-back kind of place. But for, this is interesting. Former footballer Sam Newman caused a ruckus, as everyone's heard this story, when he said on the... The weekend last weekend that footy fans should boo the welcome to country ceremonies that have become mandatory these days now newman was uh, metaphorically booed himself by the usual suspects mm-hmm. so he suggested instead that people should belt out the schmaltzy 80s patriotic tune i am australian well not even that could bring the anti-racist crowd over the line here's how i saw it on my show on monday night But Newman's suggestion was a good one. Welcome to country is a divisive gesture because it assumes one group of Australians has a greater claim over this continent than the rest of us. But I am Australian says we are all equally Australian, no matter how long we've lived here. It wasn't long ago that the left thought this was a wonderful idea, but not anymore. Now we are at the point where not even something as saccharine as I am Australian can bring us back together. Nice work, Albo. You've created almost irreconcilable divisions in this country. And for what? A referendum that will now fail? It's true, isn't it, Nick? You know, we are are divided. I find these divisions... um, difficult to uh, imagine being reconciled. What do you think? Well, that's right. But I, I look at the, look on the positive side of this, Fred, and, and I was just thinking the other day how what, what The Voice has done has actually remind a whole lot of people, not everybody, but a vast number of people about the basic rule of being Australian, which is that you, you everybody gets treated with equal respect, right? You're all equal as citizens. Whatever else you are, that's not as important as being equal on equal terms with one other citizen, whether you're, you know, whether you're a, 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 a man, a woman, a Pole, Ukrainian, or even a surfer, you know that that, <laughs> that identity politics stuff that you sometimes play uh, <laughs> comes secondary to being Australian. And a lot of us have realised, and we knew it in our hearts, but we've kind of been brought home by this 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 voice idea. And um, so I think that is strengthened. But of course, this is a reminder that. We're, we're fundamentally quite unable to reconcile yeah. with one another over over even over a simple song. C- certainly not. What about what about if we we can't get by with we are Australian? How do you think we go if we tried? I still call Australia home these days <laughs> after after what Qantas have done. That song is dead forever. Isn't well, it? it's it's inextricable from from the Welcome to Country now because you hear them at the same time when every time every yeah. time a, a a Qantas jet lands, you, you get the Welcome to Country, and then I still call Australia home. Which, as we pointed out on this podcast before, uh, uh, two th- those two things can't be true at once. But uh, yeah, that talk about schmaltzy. What about uh, we propose a new a new anthem? I still call Guitar Home. <laughs> <laughs> Or why my guitar gently weeps? 
yeah, that's right. No, this is this is look, it's troubling. And and uh, yeah, go back to our villain of the week, Dan Andrews. He he virtually outlawed or or or, or made. Australia Day, a non-event in the state of Victoria. Mm. Uh, you know, it's celebrated yep. elsewhere, but down there they're so woke that they won't. One of the, one of the uh, sort of perennial images of, of of Melbourne during Dan Andrews' time was those uh, those diggers behind a fence watching the Anzac Anzac mm. Parade go past. Not allowed to be part of it. Or horrible, horrible. I'm reminded of something that uh, our colleague, our our um, unwell colleague Mark Stein once said he um, he he once back in probably about 10 15 years ago um, when he realized soon after he wrote his great book after America which chronicled the uh, the demographic decline of America and the fact that uh, the the era of uh, of American hegemony was over, and it would probably not be replaced by something re- resembling Western civilization. He recalled that, and uh, and he re- he recently recalled that and said, uh, "Back in my dark days, I used to worry." This is for you know, back in my dark days of ten or fifteen years ago, when he first realised that Western civilization was on the decline. He said, "I used to worry." That America would degenerate into civil war, <laughs> and he said, "These days, I worry that it won't." <laughs> <laughs> the, the breaking down of these these moments that bring us together and the ties—it's it's stark, isn't it? I mean, I remember about fifteen years ago, I remember going um, get a haircut, and, and there was a Korean woman who hadn't been here very long. Obviously, you could tell she had very little English, and then halfway through the haircut, she said. What horse you back? What horse you back? And she had learned after, I don't know, a year, maybe two years maximum in Australia, that you have to back a horse, or you used to have to back a horse, right? You can't on, on Melbourne Cup Day. It's not acceptable. It's un-Australian to say I'm not putting a bet on a horse, even though you know that there are chances of you winning. <laughs> Isn't uh, that great? I thought that was fantastic, but I, that, is that going to happen today? I mean, since then, you see, the Melbourne Cup has come under attack you now get yeah. these but from yeah. from vegans militant vegans who lie who, you know who declare that it's cruel and horrible that wasn't happening 15 years ago yeah. like that was one of the remaining institutions that you could still knew that everybody would stop the nation yeah yeah well our our federal department of multicultural affairs spends has a budget annual budget of 100 million dollars so that is money being spent on people like your Korean hairdresser to yeah. not assimilate, to yeah. not learn that, you know... You have to back a horse. You have to back a horse. So um, I think that the, the field is wide open for that thing that will unite the nation. Yep. And that's where we've got to step up on the parting shot. We must be the, the we will be the moment that stops the nation. We are the podcast that stops the nation. The podcast. <laughs> what a great! I think we've earned a beer for that one, yeah. Nick. Well done, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you again next week.